Hey, everybody. Absolutely electric episode of the Bitcoin show today. We have Joe Consorti. Joe is a Bitcoin analyst is how I would describe him. He publishes his analysis on Twitter and on YouTube, works with some great brands in Bitcoin like Thea and the Bitcoin Layer. We talk about his thoughts on the Federal Reserve, the FOMC meeting, uh, Jerome Powell 60 Minutes interview. We also talk about this cycle for Bitcoin versus previous. We talk about Bitcoin equities like MicroStrategy, Coinbase, mining stocks, and everything in between. It's a, a fantastic episode of the show. It's brought to you in partnership with Leather Wallet. Go to leather.io. This is the preferred Bitcoin wallet, in my opinion, for sure. So definitely check them out. Anyways, hope you enjoy the show. And welcome to the Bitcoin show. We do the show every Tuesday, 2 p.m. Eastern time, right here on Twitter Spaces, simulcast to YouTube, where we discuss all things Bitcoin and macro, past, present, and future. Uh, make sure that you like the tweets, subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the YouTube channel, so on and so forth. We're available everywhere that you get your content, audio podcast, Spotify, Apple, uh, every platform, wherever you get your podcasts. The show is brought to you in partnership with Leather Wallet, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Bitcoin Wallet creating a bridge between the Bitcoin network and emerging layer two solutions. Leather is your go-to self-custodied open source and audited Bitcoin wallet, allowing its users to secure and manage Bitcoin ordinals, Stacks L2, and other Bitcoin-related assets like BRC20s. Uh, Leather is Bitcoin for the rest of us. And so actually, Clemente just pointed out one audio issue. That's exactly why. Clemente, I think that we're good now. All right, so I wasn't as ready I told Joe that we were. But anyway, look, ladies and gentlemen, we have a repeat guest. Uh, and again, if you want to check out Leather, go to leather.io or follow Leather Wallet on Twitter. Uh, but today we have a guest that's been on the show to, uh, last year, actually. And he's been on a ton of Bitcoin podcasts recently. Really excited to have him back. Joe Consorti. Joe, how's it going? Yo, what's up? Happy to be back on. Excited to, to chop it up with you guys again. Absolutely. So I'll spare you from giving your own intro because every podcast that I listen to you on, it seems like the hosts make you give an intro. My understanding is uh, you're a really young guy, early 20s, you know, wise beyond your years, I guess they could say. You were on the pre-med track in high school, ended up switching to business when you went to undergrad, taught yourself Bloomberg, started paying attention to markets. COVID hit, started a little business, made a couple hundred thousand dollars, kind of normal person business, painting houses, uh, looked for a place to deploy that capital got into Bitcoin, uh, price went up, got obsessed with Bitcoin. Now you work in Bitcoin. You're a YouTuber uh, and you know doing research and presenting your information on YouTube and on Twitter. Do I have that about right? Exactly right. Couldn't have said it better myself. Awesome. Well, I'm glad we got through that quickly uh, into the meat and potatoes. So check it out. We had an FOMC meeting and then we had a 60 Minutes episode with Jerome Powell. And it almost seems like the messages were a little bit different. What are your thoughts on what we've seen from the Fed? I know you literally just went on a podcast and talked about this, but I think that was before the 60 Minutes episode. Yeah, it was before the 60 Minutes episode. So, you know, we did, we did have a 60 minutes interview with Jerome Powell. This is the first one that he's done. We've had 60 minutes interviews from other fed members, but this is the first time that we got one from, uh, from the fed chair or this fed chair. At least we, we had obviously episodes with Ben Bernanke in the past. And this is pretty substantial because Jerome Powell doesn't like to do, um, these kinds of things. He does the FOMC meeting and that is basically it. He doesn't do many other speaking arrangements. And so this 60 minutes interview it seems interesting, the timing, all things considered. 
Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the upcoming election. If we're being real, the incumbent president doesn't have a great deal going for him other than asset prices, and they're doing their best to conflate asset prices with the economy. One component of the the uh, incumbent's economic success, if you will, is bringing price inflation back down to 2%. But obviously, prices are different from inflation. Uh, think of the price level as a car. Think of inflation as the speed of a car. If the speed of a car falls, the car is still moving forward, right? Um, the only way that a car moves backward is if the speed of the car uh, is if the car is in reverse, right? Same thing with inflation. Inflation falls, the price level is still rising, okay? And so I tweeted this out uh, following the 60 Minutes interview because the 60 Minutes interview, frankly, that's entirely what it was all about. Um, the entire mainstream media apparatus has been saying inflation has fallen, inflation has fallen. Obviously, the game there is to try to get people to, to get the layman to, to look at that headline in passing and go, well, I suppose prices are prices have fallen. Well, that's not even remotely true. And so I tweeted out um, this car analogy. And I was amazed by how many people were in my comment section saying that I was wrong. I was wrong. Um, and that's how you know was, it's a good tweet, Joe. It goes to show. I mean, I I did pretty well on my AP calculus exam, so I'm not I'm not a dummy when it comes to math. I hate to say things like that, but it goes to show why the regime can get away with headlines like this. Why the regime can constantly um, conflate an absolute level with a rate of change because most people don't understand the difference. And that's why they've been lying to you. And uh, it, as it, when it comes to the Fed meeting, um, Jerome Powell was right to talk down the expectation of rate cuts. The market got a little bit away uh, ahead of itself. Um, the reason I say that is because we've actually seen in the days since, well, well, well first of all, the, the Fed's dual mandate is price stability and full employment. It's it has full employment. It has more than full employment. People are multiple job holders are at an all time high as a percentage of the labor force. It's a different story. But uh, multiple job holders are are rising because people are taking on more and more jobs because they can't make ends meet with their existing wages because of the price level. That aside, um, the Fed's dual mandate is full employment and price stability. And to achieve its price stability mandate, what the Fed tries to do is maintain 2% long run inflation target. Now, the reason they do that is kind of silly. Uh, most people will just scoff at it. Most, most people don't think, they, they think it's a natural phenomenon. Um, the natural order of prices as technology improves and we become more productive is down, but inflation is artificially engineered uh, because economists believe, well, this is the justification they provide, that if prices didn't go up in perpetuity, we would stop buying things. So you and I, if prices went down over time, we wouldn't go to the grocery store and buy food. Wouldn't we, wouldn't touch buy, it. We, we wouldn't need it. We wouldn't buy a new car if the price of vehicles went down, um, even though we, we need to get to work. We wouldn't buy a train ticket. We wouldn't buy a ticket to the ball game because prices go down. It's a completely silly argument, and it is kind of a facade. It, it kind of rationalizes what the government is doing, what the Federal Reserve, what glo the global central banking cabal, let's call it like it is, is doing. They, they trick the masses into thinking that uh, this is a natural phenomenon that's caused by corporate greed or any any number of other totally extraneous factors that have nothing to do with the big building on Echo Street in the United States that's pumping out uh, an insane amount of money on a daily basis. And it has allows bank allowed banks to lend money into existence. Um, and so that that whole facade is crumbling down now that price inflation hit 9%. More and more people are looking to understand these things. 
And uh, I feel as a, as a result, this sort of propaganda is crumbling, obviously helped by platforms like this, like X that, that we're talking on right now. Um, journalism is now no longer relegated to big buildings in New York City. Uh, it's it, it can be anybody with an internet connection and their cell phone. So their propaganda is beginning to fail, but it was it was in the Fed's best interest to walk back the expectations for rate hikes because late last year, Fed members got out ahead of themselves and started projecting that they they think that rates are going to come down in the following year. The market operates a lot off of forward expectations. And so if you hear the policymakers say that after all the tightening they've done, <clears throat> 525 basis points worth or 5.25%, after all that policy tightening, if you're a market participant, if you're a business and you hear rates are going to come down, you go, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And you start spending like rates are going to come down, like the cost of capital is going to be lower. Yep. And that reignites economic activity, which reignites price inflation. And so that's what we've, we're seeing happen. In the latest uh, piece that I wrote for the Bitcoin layer that I write with uh, Nick Bozia, the author of Layered Money, I'd encourage anyone on the space listening to go check it out. Just search the Bitcoin layer on Google. I uploaded uh, a chart that was prices paid and CPI inflation. And it's actually up on my Twitter right now. I think it's one of my recent tweets. Clement, um, they can pull those up and, and share them on screen while we discuss. Yeah. Uh, Joe, did yeah. you freeze? Yeah. So it's prices price paid by businesses. Hello? Yep. Everything good? I think you're okay, yeah, cool. a little bit of lag there. Yep. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, I think it's just because I opened the Twitter tab. I'll close that now. But yeah, there it is. So prices paid, CPI inflation. So I wrote here, ISM prices paid for January just shot up massively. And this is an index. So this index, this is an index value from 57.4 to 64. Now this is like a two sigma beat versus the 56.7 expectation, right? This is a huge uptick in prices paid. Now think about it this way. Prices paid by businesses, that's downstream. So the price that businesses pay, they're going to pass it down to you. Um, yep. they, they have to, they have to pass it off to the consumer. Inevitably that'll pro that, you know, there is a threshold at which that leads to, uh, fewer consumers buying, which leads to less revenue for the business um, which means that it begins laying people off. Um, you know, particularly as the, uh, you know, people have been strapped, uh, with, with ex extremely high prices for quite some time. But basically this is just, this is just upstream business prices is the easiest way to think about it. And, um, as these businesses have to pay more, it, eventually it passes on to consumer prices and it becomes visible in the CPI within like six months. So I overlaid the two, I set prices paid forward by about six months and that's the path that we're on. Um, the, the, that little, we've been stuck at this 3% level for ages, uh, with price inflation and for the fed to come out and forecast cuts. Now prices paid are reacting such that, um, reacceleration and in inflation. And so in order to kind of take cuts off the table is Powell trying to fight this. Cause if you look at prices paid, it's basically just like, here is where price inflation is going. And, uh, Powell doesn't like that at all. Obviously it goes against what they've been able to achieve and bringing price inflation down from 9.1% to, to near its target. And just when they're within striking distance, they managed to reignite inflation expectations. And so I think that the 60 minutes interview combined with, uh, Powell's extreme hawkishness at the meeting was just trying to talk this down and make sure that this doesn't get passed into consumers that consumers don't get too far ahead of themselves. And that prices, uh, prices, uh, you know, the, the rate of price increases fall falls because we know prices never fall, but the idea is to make it so that they're stealing your money, but they're doing it in such a subtle way every single year that because most humans don't think on a very long time horizon, 
um, they won't notice, right? And in 10 years, may in five years, maybe you'll look back and go, huh, I remember this was cheaper. Must be corporate greed. And so long as inflation is around 2%, you're not going to question it. The official explanation is, oh, you know, we... <laughs> We need velocity of money, and velocity of money is enabled by credit and by um, uh, price inflation. Otherwise, people wouldn't buy things. But the legitimate explanation is that it takes away their power. If if they if they can't perpetually devalue your money, you can't be a slave to them. Um, if they don't have control over that, you you can't be a slave to them. And so that is why they they say that they're an absolute necessity, even though price stability existed before Fed, the Fed granted all U.S. banks to lend credit lend money into existence via credit and loans. Um, and even though the world economy was completely fine prior to the creation of the global central banking cabal led by the Federal Reserve back in 1913, but they're not a necessity, but but they they do these things to make it seem like they are. Well, appreciate the level of detail. One note on that. I mean, if you read the book Broken Money by Lynn Alden, she point out, points out that, um, you know, historically when human productivity, you know, and technology improves, the cost of goods is supposed to go down. It's not supposed to and go up. It's easier to make the goods because you have the technology. So the price should go down. So it would make sense if prices actually go down. Uh, I have a question. You were talking about the soft landing narrative on another podcast I heard you go on recently. What does a quote soft landing look like for the Fed? Like what would need to happen for them to be able to declare that they they succeeded and they got the soft landing? Like what does that look like? Price inflation returning to 2% and not going into deflation and the labor market remaining intact, so the unemployment rate not rising too much above where it is now. That's what a soft landing looks like. So uh, uh, a decrease in the rate of price increases, a, a decrease in the rate of inflation without the unemployment rate skyrocketing. That's a soft landing. So essentially a slowdown in economic activity that doesn't constitute a recession, which is a reduction in the, the rate of growth of economic activity. That's what a soft landing looks like. Um, and it basically means return, you know, resolving inflation without causing a recession. Uh, but time and time again, that's never, it's never happened. We've gotten close. We got close in, uh, uh, 2019 and we're close now. We're damn close now, but, um, there it is. Yeah, this is, this is in my, uh, pin tweet. And I made this chart on the terminal. What I did here, the terminal is a really cool function where you could look up the frequency of a phrase or a word appearing in headlines. And so I took the frequency of the phrase soft landing. This is not a new phrase. It's been used for decades, even before 2000. But I, I did it for the last 25 years just to illustrate my point. The phrase soft landing, its frequency rises every time the Fed reaches its terminal rate. Because there's always this transient period, like we're in now, where the Fed significantly tightens financial conditions, but businesses are still okay, right? Because businesses don't need to roll over their debt which means that you know they don't need to begin scaling back their operations because they have to finance their debt at a higher rate. The maturity wall hasn't approached any number of reasons. It takes some time for the effect of the Fed's financial tightening to actually reach financial markets. And in that period, there's, a, there's this like Goldilocks phase where price inflation is returning back down to target. It seems by all accounts, like it's going to be able to return back down to target without a spike in unemployment, without masses of people being laid off all around the country. Um, and so in white, those headlines tend to spike right around the time uh, when the Fed reaches its terminal rate. And generally speaking, these periods are like anywhere from six to 18 months where things seem okay. And then all of a sudden the soft landing headlines totally plummet and the Fed begins cutting rates. Um, those happen right around the same time. 
And it's because a soft landing hasn't been achieved ever. Um, and that's not to say it can't be, right? Again, we're really close to it. We're, we're really close to it. And I think a great deal of that has to do with um, what happened before this tightening cycle. We've had a historic tightening cycle, but before this, we had a historic fiscal and monetary easing impulse. We had trillions of dollars pumped into financial markets um, and given out directly to people that people are still benefiting from. Um, a huge and absurd amount of fraud uh, with the small business loans that were extended during COVID. Um, and frankly, people's disposable income that they got in the wake of COVID still hasn't run out. It's about to run out though. Uh, I have another chart. It's on my Twitter. It's a little bit further back, but essentially it is about uh, disposable income. The reason the Fed has gotten away with hiking rates so aggressively and nothing material really happening is... Um, here it is on February 1st. I wrote only $200 billion in excess savings from post-COVID stimulus are left. This is from the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. They did this. Um, th th their estimates are the most accurate that we can get. So essentially, um, aggregate pandemic era savings from direct monetary stimulus, so cash in your pocket, rose to $2.1 trillion. That was the height of it at August of 2021. And you'll recall that during 2021, that's when inflation started to really rear its head, right? It started to rear its head and then throughout 2022 and then, uh-oh, into 2023, it's getting really serious. We begin hitting 9.1% uh, price inflation. It's getting real bad. Um, so cumulative aggregate pandemic era savings, $2.1 trillion. That's a huge cushion. And now as rate hikes have happened, of course, because, because of price inflation, people have to dip into their savings, but also as rate hikes have happened. So prices, so the price of items has become more expensive and then credit has become more expensive. Interest rates are higher. So credit cards are more expensive. Um, and so people have had to dip into their savings as a result of both of those things being more expensive. And now cumulative, that, that excess savings cushion of sorts has gone from $2.1 trillion all the way down to $200 billion. Um, it's getting drained by about $90 billion each month. This was as of December, I believe. Uh, no, this was as of January. And so in March, right, uh, roughly the first week of March, if my math is correct, which is that that is when all this liquidity will be drained. And so the Fed's ability to conduct its soft, to, to be able to hike this much without exploding the labor market, exploding financial markets, it has to do a lot with this huge excess liquidity dump that happened following COVID, at least in my thinking. Um, this first week of March is going to be really testing. It's going to be really telling. And it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a gut check for me whether or not my pin tweet is accurate or not. Obviously, historically, it's been the case that a soft landing never happens. But will this time be any different given this cushion? Or once this cushion runs out, um, will everything rain true? Will the un unemployment rate skyrocket? As a result of the Fed's aggregate tightening, uh, we'll have to wait and see. Honest to goodness, um, this was—you know—you you fire off a bazooka; it's kind of tough to tell the collateral—not collateral damage, but like where the shrapnel went, where all this, where all this money is, where it went, what the actual resilience of financial participants in the real economy and in financial markets is. So it's going to be tough to tell. But there is kind of a triple whammy that I'm looking at, and that's the first week of March. So I mentioned money in the pockets of consumers, that post-pandemic COVID stimulus that has allowed consumers to be resilient, even in the face of these rate hikes, that is drained the first week of March. Also happening in the first week of March is the Fed's 
um, basically uh, super sweetheart deal emergency loan facility, the bank term funding program, which has allowed banks to hide their treasury impairments um, via an emergency loan that expires in the first week of March too. And so following the first week of March, banks will no longer be able to post their devalued US treasuries, which happened as a result of the Fed's interest rate hikes with the Fed and get 100% of the value of the treasuries in return. That has allowed banks to limp along because if, you know, let's say you have a shed. I'm looking into my backyard. My shed's right here. Let's say you have a shed and you're borrowing $10,000 against the value of your shed. Um, when the value of your shed drops below a certain level, you're required to post more collateral or your collateral gets liquidated. Um, let's say instead of having to liquidate my collateral in order to pay off my uh, lender, let's say that I was able to take my shed to the shed store and get 100% of the value of my shed instead of having to liquidate my collateral to pay off the people who are calling in my loan. Um, that's what banks have been able to do. And they've been able... In doing that, they have been able to basically stave off failure. Um, they've been able to re-up their cash balances that were impaired as a result of these duration losses. Duration is interest rate risk, these losses that happen as a result of uh, rates going up. That's what they've been able to do for a year. And now you just had a chart on screen, Silic uh, not Silicon Valley Bank, rather, the, the regional bank that acquired Signature Bank, uh, the New York Community Bank Corp. Signature Bank was one of the... Uh, one of the uh, banks that went under last year, New York Community Bank Corp, it, it's plummeted like 60%, 70% now, um, its stock price. And essentially, this is, uh, this is the stock market saying that it's worried about the health of small and mid-size regional banks and some large reason, regionals too. Silicon Valley Bank and uh, Signature Bank, at the time of their failure, they were some of the largest, Silicon Valley Bank um, was the single largest bank failure by total asset size in history, larger than, larger than all of 2008 combined this is by asset size. Um, and so the fact that the banks that acquired these banks are net, that basically inherited these balance sheets, um, last year are now, you know, the market is in, uh, is in doubt as to whether or not they'll survive. Uh, it's, uh, it's very telling. And it tells us that banks are worried about the bank term funding program ending. It's worried about that first week in March that, you know, liquidity is really set to leave the market in force. One thing though, the, on the flip side of that token is that as you just pulled up on screen, the senior loan officers survey, uh, officially titled the senior loan officer opinion survey on bank lending practices. This is called SLUs, and this comes out once monthly, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, Essentially, SLUs for the month of January indicated that fewer banks tightened lending standards last month. And in fact, commercial and industrial loan demand rose. It's still negative, um, but the rate of decreases fell, which means that business activity is declining, but it's certainly not dead by any means. Um, and banks, they tighten standards significantly. You can see with that, um, uh, with the blue and white lines, Blue is tightened somewhat. This is a survey of bank respondents. Blue is they tightened somewhat. White is they tightened considerably. You could see that that spiked uh, late last year and loan demand absolutely plummeted. Well, now you've seen that the number of banks reporting they have tightened both considerably and only a little bit has fallen and loan demand has rebounded as a result. Again, loan demand is still negative. It's still 25% lower than it was last quarter, but that's uh, last month, but that's up from uh, 40%. Uh, actually, it looks like this is quarterly. Excuse me. So this is in the, in the fourth quarter. 
Um, uh, yeah. So yeah. So business activity is not dead at all. And that's all the more reason for the Fed to feel confident about not forecasting its rate cuts yet. Um, and so it's kind of playing, it's playing this game where biz, the economy is still doing well. Prices are still elevated. Downstream prices are still elevated. Uh, if it forecasts rate cuts, it, it risks spurring inflation expectations. But we got to remember what's on the horizon. Like one month from now, a month and a few weeks from now, the bank term funding program is set to expire. The Fed's reverse repo facility, which has also acted as a cushion um, for all these people buying U.S. treasuries, is going to run down to zero. And then money to buy U.S. treasuries is going to have to come from financial markets, which is going to be really bad for market liquidity and really bad for stock prices. Um, and excess savings from consumers is set to uh, basically run out, run down to zero. So the Fed's correct now because business activity is still going well. Loan activity rebounded um, downstream. Looks like the forward-looking indicators for price inflation have rebounded. But also on the horizon in March, we could hit this huge brick wall. We'll have to wait and see. It's going to be a really next, uh, really eventful next six weeks, in my opinion. Definitely juicy. I'll be following uh, your coverage of it. We have Publius with his hand raised on Twitter, so we'll be able to hear him here on the YouTube uh, stream. Publius, what's going on? Hey, Pia. Thanks for having me up. I'm I'm driving in my Cybertruck on autopilot wearing a Vision Pro, just so you have background on where I am right now. Um, Perfect. Kidding. Um, <laughs> Trevor's loving that. Um, Joe, uh, one thing, I don't know if I uh, missed, missed you saying it, so excuse me, uh, excuse me if you did say it, but uh, all the banks who are accessing the bank turn funding program, which you and I actually kind of talk about that a lot on Twitter, they um, are no longer going to be able to use that, but they're going to be able to tap the discount window. Is that right? And That's what right. are your sort of expectations, just briefly, on what that looks like? Because right now, probably the past forty billion ish dollars worth of bank turn funding program loans have just been arb trades, not like rescuing banks. They're actually making money on it, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, past a certain level. So what what happens to uh, yeah? What basically what happens to the banks that can't access BTFP and have to tap a discount window? What does that look like? Right. So you're right. Most of the BTFP borrowers have just been doing arbitrades. They have been taking out loans at a low rate at BTFP and then investing in just leaving it in reserve balances because the interest on reserve balances uh, is higher than the BTFP rate. And so the Fed, the banks were borrowing from the Fed at one facility and then investing with the Fed at another facility. And um, they were arbing that trade. But now you're exactly right. What happened earlier this or last month, rather, was the Fed permanently raised the BTFP rate above IORB in order to get rid of this ARB trade. So here on out, um, when when the facility ends in March, I don't expect anything crazy to happen immediately because one thing is that they'll be able, any bank currently using the uh, window will be able to re-up their loan for an additional year. So for example, loans that are set to expire when the facility expires on March 11th, on March 10th, they could just roll that into a new loan that will last for another year. I expect a lot of participants who are not able to pay it back to do that. Um, but you're right, for future emergency lending after that will have to be done through the discount window. I expect that the same stigma that is attached to the discount window will always be attached to the discount window. Well, One thing that, no, they have they have to tap it once a year. They're required to now. Well, yeah, I'm getting to that. So 
so the same the same stigma that has been attached to the discount window will always be attached to it but like just like you said banks are are required to tap the fed's uh discount window once per year the official justification is that it's like a fire drill when you were in school you needed to do a fire drill in order to know how to quickly get out of the building um the official quote is that it is aimed to reduce stigma and ensure lenders are ready for troubled times but the reality of the situation is how difficult could it be to to, to get in contact with the fed and get an emergency loan why on planet earth would they force banks that are not impaired to take on loans uh even if they're just really extremely small loans that get paid back immediately why are why is the amount of banks that are going to the discount window forcibly higher and i have a feeling it has to do with why btfp was so successful which is that it masquerades the identity of the people uh who are actually in extreme stress in btfp it just didn't reveal the identity of the people who are using it the idea was bank runs can spread like wildfire these days because we all have mobile phones the rise of social media and so you know if a big twitter account says "Uh oh silicon valley bank borrowed just tap the fed's discount window for 50 billion dollars uh oh people are going to go run to um silicon valley bank and they're going to want their money and then all of a sudden the bank uh, goes kaput with this um with this kind of like fire drill thing the fed is going to be doing it's going to make it so that all the time you're hearing about new participants tapping the discount window and you won't be able to know who's really doing it because they're impaired and who's doing it just because it's one of their fire drill loans. Right. Um, so kind of the same tactic that they use with the bank term funding program to make it so that there wasn't any stigma attached to borrowers. Um, it's a similar mechanism to that. So, uh, I still have a feeling the the discount window stigma, people are still going to be able to figure out who really is impaired and who isn't based on the size of loans that are being taken out from the uh, from the facility. Uh, and also word gets around pretty fast if, if banks are in fact impaired. Um, get, word gets around on Wall Street and then just as quickly it hits it hits the tape and before you know it, the, the bank run ensues. So I don't think this is going to do, do much of anything. Um, them forcing banks to tap the discount window is going to do much of anything to conceal the identity and prevent bank runs. Um, this chart you have up on screen now is it shows the, uh, the small bank cash reserves with and without BTFP. Um, so in blue, it's with the bank term funding program. And in red, it's without the bank term funding program. And basically that dotted line that I put there, it's the bank's reserve constraint level at which level they begin to be unprofitable on the amount of loans that they have extended. Um, and uh, they begin to fail. They started to fail in 2012 or 2013. Um, they started to fail in 2019 and 2020. When we hit this level again, they started to fail again in 2023. So I have no doubt that, you know, BTFP ending, um, it won't immediately be this huge, massive burden on small, but it won't immediately dr drop this, you know, the small banks cash reserves below this reserve constraint level because again banks can extend their loan for another year if they need to without anybody knowing that they did but what it what this chart does show is how reliant small banks have become on uh on the fed in order to maintain their normal day-to-day -day operations and uh there's nothing as permanent as a temporary government facility right so that so the saying goes and so because banks have now kind of sunk their teeth into this facility you know it can go away for a time, but I don't think that it'll go away permanently. As a policy fixture, it has just done too well. I think the Fed fixed the main issue with it, was which was that 
banks were arbing at the facility. I think, uh, you know, borrowing at a low, at this low interest Fed facility, investing at another, at a higher one. I think if the Fed just keeps the rate for BTFP loans higher than the rate on all of its other facilities, I think it'll stay around for a long time, or they will change the terms of the discount window so that nobody knows who taps it. So the, the discount window becomes as attractive of a facility as the bank term funding program. Um, it would also allow the Fed at the discount window to issue, to have different loan terms for every single borrower um, instead of uh, kind of the one fixed rate that they charge at BTFP. So it would allow the Fed more flexibility in managing crises if they were to take some of those characteristics of BTFP and bring them to the uh, the discount window, which they might do, or they might not end BTFP at all. But I fear for the optics of them not not ending BTFP when they said they did, because that would um, that would kind of uh, reignite panic in markets. Incredible level of detail. Publius, any follow-up? Yeah, I do have follow-up. Sorry. Um, um, one, one just briefly, when you kind of squint your eyes at the compulsory um, uh, tapping of the discount window by every bank on an annual basis, one, does that kind of look like national, nas like nationalizing the bank, the bank, uh, banking system? If you kind of squint your eyes, um, or maybe don't squint your eyes, um, and then two, um, given that we've started to see um, commercial real estate loans like really start to uh, affect um, some of the, some of the important banks, uh, including even uh, even like institutions in Japan that had. Uh, participated in buying U.S. Uh, commercial real estate. And there's this comment about, um, it's like when you see one cockroach, that means there's more. I'm uh, wondering to what extent you think that's going to play out, if you have any opinion on that, and whether that'll put more pressure on uh, these regional banks, especially uh, having to tap the discount window. Yeah, CRE is, CRE is another big problem. Um, the percentage, yeah, well, that's that's the tweet right there. So, Commercial real estate debt, um, seventy percent of it is owned by small banks. This includes office space and, and the like, and um, a record number of office spaces vacant in U.S. metro areas. I think it's like twenty-one percent, something like that. Way higher than it's ever been. Uh, and so, the, the small banks hold the majority of uh, commercial real estate debt. Obviously, not all of its office space, so not all of it will be, not all of it will be delinquent. But that's really bad. Um, bank term funding program. It allows banks that have huge losses on their U.S. Treasuries to bring them to the Fed, and uh, they can they can uh, paper over those impaired losses. They can get a loan that fixes that right up for them. But one facility currently does not exist for commercial real estate, um, and if banks are left with these, uh, you know, commercial real estate debt that goes uh, delinquent and then into default, and then the banks take the properties, what? does the Fed do? Does it begin lending against devalued real estate? I don't think so. Um, <laughs> and so it's interesting. We're at this, uh, it's like a structural shift in the way that we work. I haven't, I mean, I've been in the workforce for uh, going on eight years now. I got my first job when I was 14, um, but I haven't worked anywhere physically in the last two something years. And for the majority of white collar America, the, that's the exact same thing. Um, and so we're in this kind of structural paradigm shift where, where, where office space is needed to a lesser and lesser degree. What's going to happen to all of the uh, all of the people who have mortgages out on these spaces that no longer are cash flowing? 
uh-oh, what does the Fed do? Does it allow the entities that hold that are you know expecting payments on all of this debt to go under? I don't think so. I think you just see further nationalization of those banks. The Fed has like a no recession mandate. It doesn't say that it does, but it basically does. You saw their response after COVID. If that isn't a no prolonged recession mandate, I don't know what is. Um, it's, a, it's the name of the game to make the United States attractive on a relative basis compared to every country in the world because we have total global currency hegemony too. It doesn't really hurt us to do extreme monetary and fiscal stimulus to to zombify our economy every time there's an issue. And so I think that instead of letting the banks fail that hold CRE, um, have huge CRE exposure, that ends up going toxic because it's no longer needed. I think that uh, just further nationalization happens. I think JP Morgan gets bigger. I think Bank of America gets bigger. JP Morgan is the second largest bank in the US other than the Federal Reserve. So I think that that's what happens. I think JP Morgan gets bigger. Um, the big four, Citigroup, JP Morgan, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo, they just get bigger. And uh, that's that. Small regional banks become a thing of a pa of the past. I just opened a business, a, a business checking account today at Citizens Bank. That probably gets absorbed. Um, you know, I become a JP Morgan customer soon enough. Um, you know, all these small community banks that you may be banking at will probably be a thing of the past in 10, 20 years. And that's no reason to get worried. Your deposits are, your, your stuff is safe. Um, we saw last March, even deposits higher than the FDIC limit were insured. So you're fine. The Fed will not allow a recession to happen, which means that none of these banks holding these toxic assets can fail, which means that um, further devaluation of your money is on the way. But of course... <laughs> It will be shrouded under the under the guise of extreme corporate greed and having nothing to do with um, central planning at all. It, it all comes back to that, Joe. Publius, any follow-up on that before we switch gears to the Bitcoin ETF? No, that was great. Thank you for that answer, Joe. For awesome. sure, man. Good chat with you. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he's still here. He might have follow-ups, Joe. Anyway, um, you know, this is called The Bitcoin Show. And obviously, you report on Bitcoin and have very valuable insight, in my opinion, when it comes to Bitcoin. Um, what is your impression of kind of how things played out with the ETF, the big run-up on Bitcoin's price, the run-up in the prices of sort of like Bitcoin equities, microstrategy stock, Bitcoin mining stocks, Coinbase, and then the subsequent pullback that we've seen since the ETFs actually started trading and kind of the action right now? Like how closely have you paid attention to the ETFs and what do you kind of make of the market for them right now? Right. Yeah. I mean, it was all things considered successful ETF launch, right? Um trying to open up my Bloomberg so I can see the, I can see what the actual numbers are, but it's not connecting to the internet for some reason. Um, all things considered good, uh, good, healthy flows, not this, not the biggest, uh, ETF launch of all time. Even if you combine all of them, not the biggest, uh, ETF launch of all time. A lot of that largely has to do with the outflows at grayscale. Um, but those of the initial ones have, have kind of stabilized and now it's seeing, I think like a hundred million dollars in outflows a day, which isn't crazy. Um, but uh, yeah, there you go. Um, so all things can see, yeah, about $100, $100 million in outflows every single day. It's encouraging. I think that zooming out beyond what we just saw, uh, this opens Bitcoin up to a whole new investor cohort. And um, I think this, this uh, will spur further education about Bitcoin because ultimately, you know, unlike, unlike us, unlike people who are, you know, younger, the boomers and, uh, you know, people with big money, they want to know what they're investing in before they do. So I think these ETFs, if anything, they're going to 
generate a great deal of uh, people who are interested in Bitcoin, learning about Bitcoin. Um, and uh, I think that'll bring a lot more of these uh, older people who have been put off from Bitcoin. The ETF is kind of their gateway to seeing that this asset has now been formalized. And then I think a great deal of them will actually choose to self-custody because they begin to understand what Bitcoin is, what its utility is. And instead of opting for instead of opting for one of these uh, institutions to hold it on their behalf, Fidelity being the only one that's actually self-custodying their own Bitcoin, which is huge, Boston-based, um, Boston-based asset manager Fidelity. Uh, the reason I say that is because I'm from Boston. We do it. We As do am it I. Correct. We, there you go. We do it right. Um, and so <laughs> I love the Boston I, shout out. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. So I have a feeling, I have a feeling that um, it's going to get a lot of this boomer money to want to invest in spot Bitcoin anyway, even though these ETF products allow them to do it seamlessly through their uh, broker um, that they already have, you know, the majority of their money locked away at a, at a 401k or some other kind of brokerage account, um, tax deferred savings, whatever. It'll, it'll lead a lot of these people to um, maybe contribute to a separate spot Bitcoin holding that they hold on their own. I have confidence that, that that will happen. But I also do have confidence that these large entities are now going to be owning a lot of Bitcoin that is going to be custodied by Coinbase. And granted, um, the wallet addresses are visible, or at least sleuths are, are finding all these wallet addresses. So we we can we can track it. We can track the Bitcoin holdings and things like that. Um, you know, but there's no way that we can have uh, real proof of reserves of any of these entities. Ultimately, the utility of Bitcoin over the next several decades um, is going to become far more apparent to people. You know, civil asset forfeiture probably seemed insane in the 20th century, but it happened. So. I have no doubt that at some stage, if the U.S. fiscal situation continues getting out of control, civil asset forfeiture probably isn't off the table. All things considered, um, Bitcoin is the asset you want to hold here because um, it, as an asset, it's absolutely scarce. So it insulates you from the reckless spending, um, the reckless debt issuance, and then obviously the, the 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 reckless printing that happens. But it also cannot be confiscated, right? Again, civil asset forfeiture probably isn't off the table. Um, as <laughs> as productivity of the country slides relative to the amount of debt that we need to issue for each new marginal unit of productivity, right? The deficit gets wider. Um, chances are the powers that be are going to need real assets, um, real assets on hand. And um, you have assets in the form of your Bitcoin. So Buy Bitcoin, buy spot Bitcoin, not just in the short term to insulate yourself from extreme money devaluation and insulate yourself from price inflation that just never ends. Prices never go down. But in the long run, to make sure that you have property. If the US continues the way that it's headed, uh, property is going to be, obviously property in and of itself is commodity, but owning things and owning things that are valuable is going to be extremely important in order to safeguard your future and your family's future. So. As an asset, both the short and long term, Bitcoin really is what you want to hold here. And I think that, you know, ETF flows, obviously, these are going to be the most influential Bitcoin products. I have a feeling that the majority of uh, Bitcoin's outstanding market cap will be within um, these ETFs eventually, just because of, again, how readily accessible ETFs are and how much money there is in accounts that that would prefer to buy these ETFs that can't go anywhere else. But um, 
I also think that with these ETFs comes a huge hunger for education. I think that's where everyone here comes in. Talk about the US fiscal problem. Talk about the US monetary problem ad nauseum. Everyone listening to this, talk, talk about it to your friends and family. And then introduce Bitcoin as the only real long-term insulation to any of that. That's your Bitcoin is your insurance policy. At the end of the day, if you think it's worthless, okay, excellent. Put $500 in, $1,000 in. Whatever sum you're comfortable losing, allocate to Bitcoin. Notice its extreme outperformance. Um, watch how it completely, um, absolutely alters your portfolio sharp ratio and get interested in it. Uh, understand what the asset does for you, not just from uh, an insulation perspective, um, but from uh, an actual ownership perspective. Understand that none of the assets that you own, you actually own. Your house isn't yours. You're paying the bank for it. Nothing you have is yours except for Bitcoin. So I think with the ETFs being approved, more people are going to come around to that, which means um, more good long-term liquidity into Bitcoin and uh, more viable in the long run that that this thing will keep us protected. So last week on the show, we had a gentleman named Fred Kruger on. He posts some, what I consider, pretty thorough analysis on Bitcoin, but also on the ETFs on Twitter. Joe, by any chance, do you follow this guy? I don't. Uh, well, anyway, it was a great interview. One thing that really surprised me, considering he you know, told us during the interview he, he owns his quote was way more than 100 Bitcoins. Like, you know, the guy's definitely a whale. Um, he actually, towards the end of you, actually uh, declared that he's a Bitcoin ETF maxi because he'd rather have BlackRock custody, you know, his Bitcoin. He doesn't want to worry about private keys and the kind of tax implications that come with an ETF makes it easier for tax purposes. Uh, I think I know your position on this. I was very surprised when Fred mentioned that on the show. Uh, I'm going to assume you disagree with the idea of buying IBIT versus buying actual Bitcoin and self-custodying it, but I'd love to know maybe a quick take on this from you. Yeah. Well, to each their own. I mean, the guy looking at his, his profile, Dude is a math PhD from Stanford. None yeah, of us, are, majority of us aren't as smart. As, none of us are smarter than this guy. Okay, so <laughs> the run. I mean, at, at the end of the day, it's like it, it comes down to a question of whether you want Bitcoin for Bitcoin or whether you want price exposure to Bitcoin. Yeah. You want price exposure, buy the ETF, right? Um, if you, if you're just looking to allocate to a Bitcoin adjacent instrument and get price exposure as the you know, as a fiscal situation worsens, as prices continue going up, because the solution at the end of every cycle is more monetary and fiscal stimulus, then just buy an ETF. It's easier for you. And also, like he said, um, much easier to do taxes at the end of the year. Yeah. Uh, if you're just holding an ETF. But if you want to hold Bitcoin for Bitcoin, obviously, you, you got to buy it on your own and custody it. Um, but he's right. I mean, if, if you're just using it for that, like, you know, the insulation mechanism against central banks and their idiocy, an ETF is an excellent way to go. Uh, but I think over a multi-decade time horizon, allocating the spot Bitcoin is the right choice for most. What do you think of Bitcoin? Or call, I call them Bitcoin equities, I guess, crypto equities versus the ETF, Coinbase, mining stocks, micro strategy. How, you, how do you see those, like the market for those playing out over the next two years? Yeah. Uh, again, as this thing grows in prop popularity, um, over many decades, these are going to be some of the most valuable companies in the world, right? Um, these mining companies that are helping keep the network afloat. You always want to have some kind of allocation to um, to people who are uh, efficiently allocating capital, right? Uh, particularly if you have faith in this space, you want to be you want to have a position in uh, in miners and the people who are helping uphold the network 
Um, I wouldn't necessarily buy the stock of any kind of exchange because again, you're, you're very open to regulatory capture, especially with all of the other stuff that most, that all publicly listed crypto exchanges have, you're leaving yourself susceptible to that. But some of the tried and true miners that have been around forever, like allocating, uh, to those is huge. Um, it'll give you a little bit of cushion, um, you know, it'll uh, it'll help bring down the uh, the beta of your portfolio, and at the end of the day, you want to be uh, you want to be supporting these companies that uh, that help maintain the Bitcoin network as well. So I don't necessarily have a price prediction, but I do think that um, you know over the next several decades, you do want to buy uh, Bitcoin mining stocks, particularly the larger ones. Very interesting. I mean, it's fascinating. One of the reasons I love this show is the different opinions of the guests. We had Dan Held on the show maybe three, four weeks ago. And when I asked him the same question, the only definitive comment he had was never buy a Bitcoin mining stock, which is, it, I just get a kick out of it. The different opinions are always, uh, you know, fantastic. Uh, you know, Joe, when you think about this Bitcoin cycle and you kind of look at it in, in terms of the broader crypto market, what do you think might be way different about this Bitcoin cycle versus the last one? We saw less of a, a multiple uh, in terms of all-time high, you know, from the bottom of the cycle to the top last time. And we saw a blow-off top in NFTs, right? New asset class within crypto. Saw Ethereum outperform Bitcoin. Um, this year, we might see an Ethereum ETF. We might not. We have a Bitcoin ETF. We're not going to get a Solana ETF or anything else. We had James Seyford on our morning show, and he kind of walked us through why that's not going to happen. Um, do you think that this cycle will be significantly different than the last Bitcoin cycle because of maybe some of the other crypto mechanics and because of traditional finance being in this time because of the ETFs? I don't think it, it'll have anything to do with... Um things that are native to Bitcoin, I think the ETFs play a role, but I think more broadly, I, I like to zoom out and talk about kind of the, the end game of, uh, of where we're headed when it comes to the US monetary order. Um, like I said, the cycle, the, the, the resolution at the end of every business cycle is this huge um, destruction in credit, this huge destruction in poorly allocated capital. In recent years, the Fed has shown its extreme reluctance to let the natural order of things play out to allow that bad capital to uh, those bad capital allocators to lose and to allow some kind of recession to occur as a result. So the end of every cycle is resolved in extreme monetary and fiscal stimulus. And now the Fed has shown that it is unwilling to even allow a prolonged recession to occur, which means that monetary and fiscal stimulus is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you've seen it. Um, Look at the increases to the global money supply, but also look at um, the total amount of national debt here in the United States. But then even go one step further and look at the debt to GDP ratio, and then even go one step further and look at um, the federal deficit as a percentage of GDP. We're becoming increasingly less productive um, relative to the debt loads we've always used, and so we need to keep increasing our debt load to say to retain the same level of marginal productivity. So we're becoming more reliant and less productive, more reliant on on ever widening fiscal deficits in order to maintain the same level of growth. But in real terms, it's becoming increasingly negative. Um, the Fed is shown an extreme reluctance on the on the monetary side of things. The Fed is shown an extreme reluctance to let recessions happen, to let banks fail. So really, um, <laughs> the entire economy is fake. Um, Ultimately, more of, it, more of it is becoming increasingly fake, like actual real economic productivity, real value is becoming harder to come by. 
um, as the years go by. And so you want to buy the one asset that obviously cannot be taken away from you. Uh, you well, well, we want to buy the one asset that stands to appreciate in the face of that more than all all others. And so, you know, absolute abundance of the U.S. dollar and accelerating creation of it and the accelerating creation of U.S. dollar debt instruments to keep the economy afloat. Okay, that's ever accelerating. You want to buy, you want to maximize your upside potential in the face of that, in the face of your denominator um, becoming worth less and less and less and less and less and an infinite amount of it being created. Um, then you want to buy whatever is the most scarce. Uh, real estate is extremely scarce and real estate is cash flowing. Um, businesses uh, having an actual cash flowing business of your own, that is a hot commodity. More and more people are, are beginning to do that as well. Um, gold is also extremely scarce and it absolves you of counterparty risk if you uh, take it out of the bank and you store it with yourself. But even that can be seized. And so the one thing that is the most scarce, it is the only absolute scarce, absolutely scarce asset in the known universe that also can't be seized because you could store it in your head. You could carve it into the side of an oak tree. You can carve every, you know, one of your seed words into the side of 50 different oak trees. Um, you know, you can, you get uh, uh, tw 24 different oak trees all around the United States. And you could have a special map that you memorize about where all those oak trees are. No one can torture it out of you. You can't do that with gold. You can't melt down. Well, you could <laughs> melt down your gold and store a little nugget of it here and there. But at the end of the day, the only asset that uh, not only appreciates the most in the face of all of this, if you think that austerity is coming back to the United States, don't buy Bitcoin, buy US treasuries, right? If you think austerity is a viable long-term solution, buy US treasuries. Um, but if you don't believe that austerity is a long-term solution and you believe that the United States government is in the process of looting the coffers and the United States uh, Federal Reserve is in the process of making sure that the economy remains positive, not in nominal terms, um, long enough for, for them to take the money and run before the citizenry of the United States find out, um, buy Bitcoin. Uh, you, you should be buying Bitcoin if you think that the train has come off the tracks fully. If you think there's some semblance of you know, we'll recover from this. Um, we'll return to austerity. The Federal Reserve is a an upstanding institution that seeks to promote price stability and full employment, and it doesn't have any other interests in mind. It's not working for the you know the interests of any other country. Then you should buy U.S. Treasuries all the way. But if you think that that's not the case, uh, you should buy Bitcoin. Two more questions, then we'll let you go. Uh, one commenter had a good question. It looks like Sniff on YouTube said, will the ETF uh, stagnate the price of Bitcoin the way it did gold and silver? I have some thoughts on this, but I'd rather hear from Joe. Joe, what are your thoughts? I don't think so. No, I think um, obviously the, I mean, <laughs> the, the debt issuance has been accelerating um, and our productivity has been declining. And uh, every cycle, the the monetary stimulus is bigger too. In two thousand and eight, um, you know, creating uh, money out of thin air in the form of bank reserves really became one of the Fed's main policy tools. So, if the size of those two things continues increasing, uh, I do think that um, you. It's not if it, it's because the size of those two things continue increasing. Bitcoin is is eventually going to be at a point where We've had diminishing cycle returns, right? You know, 90 something percent, 60 something percent, 40 something percent. Um, those will eventually rise again beyond 100. But I do think that as the liquidity of Bitcoin rises, helped by these ETFs, um, 
cycles are going to become a lot less chaotic and manic as you begin to approach the market cap of gold, market cap of US treasuries, 10 trillion, 20 trillion respectively. So um, I don't think it'll, it'll stagnate the price of Bitcoin because Bitcoin is absolutely scarce. And while gold and silver are fighting the exact same battle, which is this is it's a check on the monetary and fiscal authorities lack of austerity. Bitcoin is the only one that's absolutely scarce in the face of all that. And its supply schedule is slowing. Whereas as productivity increases, the supply schedule of gold and silver is rising. Uh, as new gold and silver is found, the, the supply schedule is rising. And so I think that is a big headwind for its price, new supply. And eventually, new supply for Bitcoin is going to be few and far between, which is a totally unique monetary attribute that it has. And so I think those two forces combined, your denominator becoming worthless at an accelerating pace and your supply becoming more scarce at an accelerating pace, um, those two things are, are, are what make Bitcoin totally And I think that, yeah, uh, it's going to help. I think it's going to stagnate the price of it. And we lost you a little bit at the very, very end, Joe, but I think we got the point. Um, I should. Oh, know all I said at the very end was, was it stagnate. All I, all I said at the end was stagnate the price of it like it has for gold and silver. I hear my phone in the other room talking about the Twitter spaces and I heard where I cut off. So that's, that's the full. Oh, th there you go. Peak performance right here with Joe. And uh, I should mention, I saw in an interview recently that Alexis Ohanian, co-founder of Reddit, pointed out that he's invested in a company that's planning on mining gold from asteroids. So I think you can expect that the supply of gold will go up over the next few hundred years. Trevor has a question, then I just have my last one. But Trevor, please, do you have a question for Joe? Yeah, what's up, Joe? Great to uh, have you on the show again. I'm curious um, what your thoughts are on the upcoming... Uh, White House election cycle and how that's going to impact the the price of Bitcoin uh, in the lead up and afterwards. Good this question. ought to be good. Yeah. So, uh, on, yeah. so on Twitter, I'm becoming. I've been getting increasingly more political. Um, I think it's all the all these things are totally connected. I think to ignore. To ignore what's happening all around me is kind of a dumb thing to do. Um, look, I think that uh, the fake polls are out in force, um, saying that the election is closer than it actually is. Uh, but also, by the same token, they've imported an entirely new electorate, and they're working on granting all of them voting rights. So um, certainly going to be interesting. I think that that Trump will get it done. I think he gets done handedly if all of the votes were real. But it, of course, that's a consideration we need to make these days. Um, I do think that the big things to consider are what both of the candidates' respective fiscal policy will be. Um, I think that the Republicans will be more austere, but just slightly. Kind of similar to the analogy I talked about earlier. It's like, oh yeah, inflation is falling, but that doesn't mean that prices are falling. It just means prices are rising at a slower pace because inflation is falling. When it comes to the debt problem, I don't think any president will ever be austere, ever. Um, the Democrats love social programs. That's how they achieve their permanent electorate. They import everybody from the world over, give them free stuff. That requires fiscal spending. That requires extreme debt issuance because tax receipts just can't just can't cover it. The amount of people that are on public benefits, um, the amount of are not austere either. Uh, the national debt has always gone up. We've had a few transient periods where it's gone down, but it's always gone up. So that's one thing to consider. And then the other thing to consider is what they're going to do about the Fed. 
Trump says that he's going to fire Jerome Powell. I don't know why, um, but he says that he's going to fire Jerome Powell. And I don't know what the implications are of that because Jerome Powell has been the one, apart from 2019, that has managed um, managed the Fed's interest rate targeting and managed Federal Reserve operations better than any Fed chair. But I don't know why he's going to fire him. So the implications for Bitcoin are kind of up in the air. But I do think that we're on the cusp of uh, of something extremely bad happening, whether that's the assassination of one of the candidates for president. Um, they've thrown everything in the book at Trump. And I think chances are they try to, you know, they try to kill the guy. It wouldn't, it wouldn't shock me. I've been saying this for, for years. Um, it, it wouldn't shock me if they tried to do that. It wouldn't shock me if in the lead up to the election, we got into, we actually started deploying troops over in Europe, over, uh, in the middle East. It wouldn't, none of these things would shock me. And all these things would deliver a massive shock to us markets. Um, but U.S. markets do love war. They do because war means spending. So um, if any of these things happen, if we enter into war for any reason, um, that means uh, more liquidity for financial markets. That probably means the price of Bitcoin stands to benefit. But in the lead up to the election, if we if we do, I think the election has less to do with it more so than than whether or not we enter into war and whether or not we enter into recession. And I think that um, recession timing is is a fool's errand. I've had that proven to me many times over the last few years. We're at the cusp where it's the most likely, um, but recession and war are the two things to consider here. And I think that um, both are highly likely. Both both Bitcoin, uh, both environments, Bitcoin would not do very well in, but we'll have to wait and see. Well, in war, Bitcoin, you're saying it with a war environment, Bitcoin would not do well? No, it would. That's what I thought. Okay. Uh, forgive me if I misunderstood that. Anyway, look, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that's our show today. Joe, so the Bitcoin layer, that's the YouTube channel. That's the business that you're operating at right now. Anywhere else people can find you, obviously, on Twitter, on X platform, at Joe Consorti. That's at J-O-E-C-O-N-S-O-R-T-I. Fantastic insight there with visuals posted on a near daily basis, if not a daily basis. Anywhere else people can find you, any newsletter, anything? Yeah. So the other thing I've just started over at Thea, uh, Thea Bitcoin is a brand new company. They just raised funding. Um, it's the world's simplest Bitcoin multi-sig service. If you've been on the mm. fence about multi-sig, it's a free app. You can type in T-H-E-Y-A to the app store, download it today. Look at beautiful. That's our beautiful website right there. So this is a company I'm stoked to be involved with. Um, you can go to Thea.us, just as it's spelled on screen right now, and download the app. Have a look at it for yourself. Again, it's totally free. And unlike these huge multi-sig services, you don't need a crap ton of Bitcoin to be able to do this. And you're storing your Bitcoin uh, in the most secure way possible. I'm also writing a new research blog for them. Uh, so if any of that interests you at all, you could go to my profile. You could just click on my name if you're listening to this on X and then follow the Thea Bitcoin account that's linked to my bio or go to Thea.us, which is the blog, uh, and then just go ahead and sign up. Make sure you subscribe there and you'll get my, you'll get a newsletter for me, super readable, super short every Monday to kick off the week, every Friday to end off the week. And, uh, you can learn more about what Thea has got in store because they got a really kick-ass app going. Well, Thea definitely um, came up in getting you as a newsletter writer for sure. Uh, I wasn't aware of that newsletter. I'll definitely subscribe. Heard you talk about Thea before. Sounds like a great product uh, to simplify multi-sig wallets, which I think a lot of people are intimidated by. Uh, but as usual, thanks so much for joining us, Joe. Uh, we always appreciate your insight and it was a great chat. Great time. Likewise. I appreciate it, P.O. Good chat as always.
Absolutely. Have a good one. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, as usual, the show is done in partnership with Leather Wallet, the Bitcoin wallet creating a bridge between the Bitcoin network and emerging layer two solutions. Leather is the self-custodied open source and audited wallet, allowing users to secure and manage Bitcoin, Ordinal, Stacks L2 and other Bitcoin secured assets like BRC20 tokens. Leather is Bitcoin for the rest of us. For more information or to create your own wallet, very simple. Just go to leather.io. You also see the X account, the Twitter account, in the co-host spot on Twitter Spaces right now. That's at LeatherBTC on X. We'll be back next week. We have Joe uh, McCann, another Joe. Joe McCann on the show next week of Asymmetric. He's had a pretty good uh, last six months, that's for sure, if you look at the assets that he tweets about and their prices. So really, really excited uh, to have Joe McCann on the show next week. And of course, make sure you give Joe Consorti today's guest a follow. That's at Joe Consorti on X platform. And you heard the other places that you can find him. We'll be back next week. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Catch you all next time. Have a good week.